0: Welcome to Scaling, Failing and Prevailing, a podcast about helping startups and corporates learn from each other through great conversations. Hi, I'm James Parton and I run the Bradfield Centre here in Cambridge, where we help tech companies scale and host hundreds of free tech events every year. Previously, I've worked in corporate innovation at O2 and Telefonica and have experienced startup to IPO with San Francisco based Twilio. So this show is gonna be a little bit different um, unfortunately my partner in crime Adelina, is not feeling too well today so I'm having to fly solo for this episode which feels a little bit weird but don't worry we'll be back together soon so we're into our second year of the show uh, we've now gone over 3,000 plays which is incredible so thank you to everyone for your support um if you're a first-time listener or you've been with us since episode one please just take 30 seconds to give us a five-star rating or leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice it will really help build awareness of what we're doing and help grow that audience so our first guest of the year is douglas squirrel Squirrel is a serial CTO with years of experience at building and fixing tech teams within startups and scale-ups. And Squirrel also hosts his own podcast called Troubleshooting Agile and has a new book coming out called Conversational Transformation. So let's get into this great conversation. So uh, Squirrel, thanks so much for joining us on Scaling, Failing and Prevailing. Um I think we first met when you were OSPA, and I was coming over as part of my Twilio role to the uh, Techstars building over in London.
1: I do remember that. Okay, yeah, that takes me back.
0: Yeah, it was a while ago now. Maybe 2012 or something like that. I don't know. Something could be. That kind of ballpark anyway. But fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I know we've got a lot to talk about today, but maybe we could start off with uh, you just introducing yourself uh, to the listeners in your own words.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm not sure who else is used words I would use. Great. Um, I've been uh, some kind of senior technical leader for 20 years or so. Uh, I've been a CTO, a VP engineering, a um, person in charge of a whole bunch of technical geeky people for uh, a very long time. And after the first 15 years and three different startups, I decided that it would be really great to talk to a whole lot of different organizations uh, very quickly. And so I've wound up working with, I think the last count was 73, and uh, that's in the course of about five years. So uh, if you do the division there, I I get through them very fast. So I work with a whole range of uh, different types of organizations and work with them in all kinds of different ways. But the, the, the overall theme is uh, basically improving conversations and improving team culture and skill. And the result of that is that um, organizations usually put about a million pounds on the bottom line when they work with me. And uh, that comes from increased technical delivery, um, improved direction, and uh, much better leadership skill and improved recruiting.
0: Amazing. Well, I mean, as I said, I knew this was going to be a good one. So I'm looking forward to diving into it. Um, so Excellent. I, th- I think the kind of overall theme for the the conversation is really uh, the kind of the common problems that you see when uh, startups start to begin that scaling journey. You know, maybe they've mm-hmm. just raised a bunch of money uh, or maybe they've seen a sudden influx in demand for their product. and They need to scale quickly. Um, so I mean, I know there's a lot of topics in there, and in fact, I I saw uh, you, you have the squirrel test. So I want to come back and talk about that. And uh, the twelve reaching was- back into
1: the vault. That's that's been yeah. a while since we've talked about that. So you probably know more about it than I do. But, <laughs> I'm but, not sure about but, that. But let's uh, give it a go.
0: <laughs> but I mean, uh, there's obviously it's obviously a massive topic in terms of how you start to scale and and start to drive a business. But I mean, why don't we start uh, somewhere around? And we've kind of touched on this a little bit on previous shows. I mean. You know, when you when you have a startup in the early days, it's probably the founding team and the first couple of hires. It's 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 fairly simple for, you know, that small group of people to all buy into a very passionate and kind of focused vision um, and know what they're all trying to, you know, they're setting out to achieve. So. How how have you seen companies struggle as they kind of onboard more and more people and they get further and further away from the original founding team? You know, what are some of those challenges around keeping that vision clear, disseminating the kind of culture that they want the the business to adopt uh, with the new hires, especially in the tech organization?
1: Sure. So I'll, I'll describe in, in, in very briefly what the, the fundamental mistake that I see over and over again, which is people forget to talk to their tech team and the tech team forgets to talk to everybody else. So the, the common pattern that I'll see over and over again as I come into organizations that tell me, oh, we're just not delivering, it's not working, uh, is um, the, the founder will often say, especially a non-tech founder, but even a tech founder will say something like, well, I can't ask them about it. I can't question the estimates. I can't do anything that um, uh, that would uh, annoy them. Uh, They'll all quit. Um, there's this fear, and then on the tech side, there'll be um, uh, 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 the the point of view that uh, either everything's just fine. We don't have to ask anybody because we're doing all the right stuff. We're addressing our tech debt, putting in microservices. Everything's beautiful. The rest of the business has you know it's like a post-nuclear holocaust. Everything's <laughs> terrible and Nobody's buying anything and the software is full of bugs, but um, uh, the the team will think it's all fine or they'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's those people. They keep pushing us and, uh, you know, they'll never let us do what we need to do and, uh, you know, we can't talk to them. So the fundamental mistake is forgetting to talk, and you would think that would uh, not be the foundation for a successful consulting business, but I'm here to tell you it is, and that's because there's um, a very natural human tendency to avoid difficult conversations, Uh. and those are potentially difficult conversations. I have – there's one – story that's in the book. Uh, this is the book, uh, Agile Conversations, coming out in May that uh, you, can, you can find on my website. Um, and uh, uh, what, what, uh, the, the story is that um, I had someone I was coaching who said, well, it was exactly the situation. She's a non-technical founder. She had a technical co-founder. And she said, I have these meetings every week with my technical co-founder. And last week, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And uh, I was my heart was pounding. I was just so anxious and upset and um, nothing was uh, was coming out the way I was expecting it to. And, you know, I'm hearing all these terrible news and I just can't I can't handle this. I'm, I'm I'm going to get ill. And I said, sounds like you already are ill. And she said, yes, I am. I said, so we need to do something about that. But the thing she was avoiding was having a difficult conversation about what she was afraid of. And it turned out that uh, her technical co-founder shared some of her fears. That um, he was able, to, once he understood what the difficulties were, he was able to adjust what the tech team was doing and, and change their focus. That uh, was a real turnaround once they had that conversation. But it was uh, a- avoiding it that caused the the worst difficulties. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're feeling misaligned in the way you describe, nobody seems to understand the vision. They're all headed off and doing these strange uh, technical things and uh, um, in, installing new services and something else, and and you're not. Not seeing results that's probably your fault and you should do something about it by having a difficult conversation
0: and do you see those breakdowns both in the kind of direct reporting line of the tech team say up to the cto or is it more frequent with the kind of more the business side
1: of the leadership team Sure. The really good question it's um, uh, it, it happens in all levels and all circumstances. Um, it's a very common human problem, huh. but uh, uh, the one where it's most visible, where you get that kind of walled garden, where the uh, the developers are on one side thinking everything is perfect, and everyone else is um, wandering around trying to fight off the zombies. Um, that's uh, the the most stark example, and that's what I see most often because I'll often be brought in by uh, by a founder or a CTO saying, uh, "Hey, this this dichotomy." isn't working but uh, you can get it uh, within a team right so uh, there's somebody in the stand-up who uh, is thinking to him or herself boy you know this um, uh, new change that James is trying to in- introduce James it's just not gonna work but I'm not going to say anything because uh, James doesn't listen or James isn't interested or he's more senior or I'm not a front-end or something else uh-huh. and um, uh, a week later you find out "Yep, yeah, that was right <laughs> that, that uh, project was doomed to failure and uh, you didn't get the information in the stand-up uh, because I was uh, too frightened to, to bring it up. I was uh, uh, concerned that it would be a difficult conversation.
0: So is, is a large part of your work then trying to create those safe spaces where people feel they can be more honest and more open?
1: Well, no, actually. So, um, and we just did a, a podcast episode on this, actually. So um, the funny thing is that you think if you create this kind of notion of a safe space that that'll be enough. That you'll get the notion of uh, psychological safety, um, a term due to Amy Edmondson in the book Teeming, um, uh, this, this sense that um, it, you can say things. That it will be okay to um, in a nursing group say to report that two medicines have the same uh, color label and they're next to each other and one kills the patients and one doesn't. That's what she studied and she found that um, if, you were, uh, if you were in a nursing group um, and you were much more effective if you had that psychological safety to say, you know, I think we should move these medicines apart. This really doesn't work. <laughs> um, but the problem is just creating the safe space, um, telling people that it's okay um, is actually not enough. So you can create as much safety as as you would like and and, um, assure everyone and um, even demonstrate it yourself. And people will still withhold information. It's shocking that, but uh, the the difficulty is that actually sharing information is so unnatural. It's it's <laughs> not something that people are used to, and they don't don't have any really good models for it in drama or in um, their their previous work lives. So uh, the, they they don't have the skill. It's actually a skill to do things like saying, um, uh, "Hey, James, you know, I, I just there's something about what you're checking in, what you told us you were doing in today's standup." There's something that just seems wrong about it. I don't know quite what it is, but I really think that's not gonna be aligned with uh, the the project I'm working on. Could we just talk about that for a minute and um, could, could we figure out if there's a problem? that's really threatening. And you notice how how, uh, low key and and calm I was in describing it. Imagine if it was, um, you know, James, I I think the um, uh, feature you're checking in is gonna be harmful to security, or uh, um, I think that um, uh, it's going to be uh, um, not well received by customers, right? There could be a lot of, much more fraught conversations to have. but even the low-key one I described is it's not a skill that people easily produce. And, and I see that over and over again. I work with my co-author Jeffrey Frederick to, um, uh, uh, to, to yeah, teach people these skills. And you, you get them uh, trying to produce them, and they can't come out of their mouths. It's actually hard for people to physically say the sorts of things they would need to in order to have that productive conversation. And that's normal that we tell people that's great. You're, you're going to feel worse. You're going to feel less skilled at the end of this workshop because you this is a skill this is a new thing you're learning you wouldn't expect to play the piano well after one lesson don't expect to do this well so safe space is not enough
0: and is there a correlation between the kind of uh, experience of the engineer versus this skill or do you actually come across quite seasoned professionals that still need this development
1: Oh, absolutely. Everybody does, um, in my experience. Unless you've you've, um, uh, um, consciously worked on it, you're unlikely to have the skill. Now, there are certainly very experienced people who are tremendous at this, and and that's fantastic. That's actually um, how these skills were developed. Jeffrey and I didn't invent this, um, by the way. This is all coming from uh, uh, a bunch of, of theory from, from social scientists, including a guy named Chris Argyris. But um, what they did is studied people who did it well, and they, they studied people who learned and figured out what the skills looked like. So there certainly do exist people who are either naturally good at this kind of thing or um, are uh, have studied and learned it and, and been burned and, and done it wrong. I'm certainly in that category, not the, the natural category, and uh, uh, they are good at it. But the much more common case is people who are inexperienced, experienced, people who've been in 10 startups, people who've been in zero startups, straight out of university, um, 20 years uh, coding been big banks, um, tend to uh, have learned um, things that are adaptive for them and, and work okay. Um, it's kind of a, an example of learned helplessness. So they've kind of figured out that um, trying to have a bad conversation, trying to have the conversation and doing it poorly didn't work out for them so they don't try again. Uh, if they've even tried it at all. So uh, it's um, not correlated to experience, as far as I can tell. Mm. Uh, it's correlated to conscious experience and and um, experimentation, actually having tried it.
0: Uh, I mean, there's obviously different definitions of scaling and scale-up out there, but I, as a rule of thumb, I would assume that if you're on that path, your tech team, it might be about 20 people, 20, 30 people, something like that. Is that, is that kind of how you kind of define that kind of stage
1: as you move into sort of Series A? Ah, I see what you mean. Um, well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. So the, the notion that I often use is, uh, again, one that comes from, uh, uh, from, from history. Uh, if, if you type into Google commandos, infantry, and police, or you guys might want to put it in the show notes, you'll find an article which is uh, on the Coding Horror blog from Jeff Atwood. And it's based on uh, a, a book uh, from the 1990s by Robert X. Cringely. And uh, what he describes is um, a model for understanding how startups evolve. Mm-hmm. And it's not closely linked to the number of people. It's uh, closely linked to the type of people. So uh, the type of people that you get in the very early stage, you alluded to this James, the, um, uh, that kind of founder and a couple friends and they're in a basement and they're pounding it together and, uh, and so on. Those are the commandos. And they parachute in, they dress up like the enemy, they do whatever they have to, uh, they break all the rules um, and and they 're very anarchic and very productive, yeah, but then you get, and this is often where I come in uh at some stage, and you 're right twenty to thirty is one place you get it, but you may get it at five, you might get it at fifty it's it, it's um not so linked to the number but the the Um, Business stage and the types of people you start hiring because they're quite different The Uh infantry shows up and they have all these rules. They don't just shoot anyone. They feel like they have the geneva convention Uh, They have they follow orders. They salute people Um, And and you get that kind of mindset where someone says well, you know what we really need is some monitoring for this gee We really ought to figure out uh, what the rota is so that if uh, if this falls over in production on the weekend somebody's fixing it Who's going to carry the pager? And and the commandos say, pager, what, what, who, what? We don't want anything to do with that. We, we don't want uh, to uh, follow what the product manager tells us to do and build what we've committed to with the customer. We want to build the cool nifty thing that uh, excites us and that is going to capture the next market. Yeah. So you have a real problem when the infantry shows up and often a lot of the commandos quit. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually normal. So I'll tell people when they hire me, you know, some people may quit. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm not going to fire them necessarily. I will if they're not successful, but, um, Uh, You know, that's not my goal here, but uh, don't be surprised. I'm kind of a harbinger of of the infantry And then of course, there's a group that comes after them and and that's the police there That's after you've completely pacified the territory and you're really the market leader and you understand um, Product market fit completely. You have this perfect product market fit And all you have to do is add money and move into new territories and uh, land new partners uh, I have a client in that state, and uh, all they do is just uh, give themselves points for how many brands they've signed up for their service, and it's, they just turn the crank. They just do the same thing over and over again, and the infantry get horribly bored. Oh my gosh! I have to follow. The, I can't shoot anybody. Uh, you know, if somebody's breaking the rules, I have to take them to jail and go to court, and all this other stuff. All this bureaucracy—it's terrible—and they leave. Yeah, and they're left with the police. So those are the three stages that I see over and over again, and I'm often introducing people to this idea, and especially to the idea that the infantry are showing up, because that's usually me.
0: So you, you kind of describe, um, you know, going into a, an organization and trying to, well, make clear that there's this skill gap and, and, and you know, providing your uh, expertise to help close that gap. Sure. Is there, I mean, what's your opinion or, you know, what's your thoughts around the kind of supply issue? So, if this is a common problem that you've seen repeated over and over again are there techniques that the hiring managers can use when they're you know interviewing uh, new hires as a way of like maybe kind of identifying this kind of skill gap up front or is the reality you know you could have to hire the engineering talent and then you know Deploy the skills uh development once they're in the organization how 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 do you see the kind of recruitment side of things you know fuel, ah, okay. fueling the fire
1: yeah um the, unfortunately the the number of people who are who are good at this type of scaling who are good at improving communication and um uh, uh, uh having difficult conversations and so on uh, that's a, a very very small number of people mm. um that's why we wrote the book so that there could be more such people mm. So um, uh, we, we'd like to, to spread the, the idea that this is a, an object of study. This is worthwhile looking at in your team. So um, you certainly can look for stories um, from the person's past, whether that's references or stories the person, him or herself, tells you about uh, dealing with a difficult problem. Um, you know, if the, if the story is all about the person as the great hero who went away in the corner and um, wrote code for 70 hours straight and uh, saved the company, that tells you one sort of thing that sounds like a commando, that sounds um, like a person who is uh, uh, less involved in um, difficult conversations and, and tough collaboration. Um, if the person tells you about going off to see the customer and discovering that uh, the report that they were going to have you uh, uh, design for them would uh, take them three years to actually read because uh, it would be uh, way too big, um, uh, uh, as happened to me actually once, um, th- then you have someone who's more focused at least on learning uh, how to have a difficult conversation, how to engage with customers, how to um, uh, uh, deal with uh, tricky communications problems. So you can try to do that, but uh, I, I don't think you're going to. to find an awful lot of people who have really highly developed skills in this area that's just um yeah it's it's worse even than uh you know trying to find a react developer or something like that yeah it's it's not it's not a skill that's often certainly isn't taught and um a lot of people don't pick it up
0: so so i mean i've worked in organizations where um they've i guess they've kind of identified this kind of problem and The solution has been sometimes, say, driven out of HR, which is problematic in its own way so you know I, i've seen the kind of reaction on the engineering side of an organization to hr kind of programs and
1: you know having let, a, let, let me let me just check you, you you've seen startups that have hr departments <laughs>
0: well more on the scale ups more more at the scale up stage yeah yeah
1: okay yes that would make sense yeah so yeah. What, you usually don't have an hr when no. i show up and there's an hr department i i, I kiss the ground yeah and i think hallelujah this is going to be easier so um even having one is a start but but what do you see coming from hr that doesn't work well
0: well, you know, the way, I mean, obviously you're coming at it from a different perspective and you have the technical credibility with the developer team, whereas an HR you know, person potentially wouldn't, but, you know, framing it as how to have, you know, difficult conversations or the other thing, the other classic thing I saw was um, trying to roll out um, thinking preferences across the organization to uh, to allow you to better understand how to communicate with peers based on their preferences. Um and all of those kinds of things are, are quickly rejected, typically by engineers. Um,
1: so, how do you? I don't think that has to do with whether the um, the approach is technical or not, whether the person has um, you know knows what a, a pointer is or uh, uh, how how to write a recursive function. That that doesn't seem like the most important thing that controls whether that works, because I, I, I certainly as I learned to do this, I screwed it up and, and introduced it poorly and and uh, didn't help people as much as I'd like to. You learn by screwing up. So uh, I, I don't think it's as linked to that with uh, a well, key thing for me is joint design, which is another of the uh. principles, another of the techniques that I find very helpful it comes from the same tradition. Um, if you involve the developers, if you involve anybody in um, the design of the solution, you get a whole lot further. Um, there's an old story about uh, when people introduced cake mixes first. They, uh, um, nobody bought them. And uh, the cake mix maker said, why is nobody buying this? All you do is add water to powder and you get cake. Isn't this great? And uh, it turned out that it was at the time Housewives. Um, it's very sexist, but that was what it was in the 1950s. But Housewives wouldn't buy it because they didn't feel like they were baking. And so what the uh, makers did is, ah, we'll take out the powdered egg. And so then you broke an egg and you put it in water and you put the powder and you made your cake and you felt like you had done enough. So um, the, the key phrase to remember is um, you need to have the people participating add their own egg. And if they're uh, and, and, and in a genuine way, by the way, so it's not kind of a fake egg and you know what it's going to come out to be. And you, and you guide the situation that backfires. That's worse. But if you genuinely involve them and you say, what kinds of communication difficulties do you have? And they say, I've never had them say this, but if they did say, the thing that's most difficult is I don't understand how James thinks, and I keep talking to him, and he says weird stuff, and I'd like to understand his thinking preferences. Then you're going to have a fertile ground on which to work, whether you're from HR or finance or uh, uh, the moon. doesn't matter where you come from and what your technology background is. If you're coming to a problem that the team have identified, that a critical mass of people have said, this is meaningful to me and I want to improve, um, even if you have to recast it, they might— Put it in my way, and you know, I don't understand how James thinks, and you say, well, I have this thinking preferences tool. Would that be helpful? If they say yes, they're going to be behind it. <laughs> it would be cognitively dissonant for them not to do that, right? It would be oh. strange for them to say, yeah, I want the help, but I don't want this, um, which would help me. Uh, I'm not even willing to try it. So you get much farther. You get much more uh, internal commitment um, if you start with a joint design process. Again, that's a skill right jointly designing something is not something that comes naturally to people people tend to come in and say well I want to convince everybody about my great new thinking preferences program I know I saw how great it was uh, when I did it before so I just need to convince them. I just need to tell them all about it It doesn't work uh, involving them in the process is much more important and it doesn't matter what your background is
0: I think that resonates with a lot of people and, and I, I certainly know Adelina's been working with some companies around this particular topic mm. um, how so? I mean, based on your kind of uh, the way you painted that um, scenario a few minutes ago, where the you know an engineer or, or more than one engineer kind of knows that this path is not going to work, but they they're not going to speak up and say why. What would your tips be in terms of how to approach that situation more collaboratively then, and uh, and kind of get that kind of you know buy in at the ground
1: level. Um. So, who who am I helping there? Am I helping the engineer who wants to say more? Am I helping the tech lead? Am I helping the executive? Because the advice is different at different levels. Well, I think
0: ultimately, I mean, you know, the, I guess ultimately, you're helping the company grow, right? It's mm. it's about getting the company to move in the right direction, um, to either acquire more customers. Um, or, or, you know, well, ultimately it's going to be acquiring customers, right? That's the
1: purpose of yeah, the sure. business. Make money. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Um, th- this is a capitalist society after all. So um, then I'm operating at executive level. So what I'm trying to do is help the the um, senior leadership to function differently um, and to, to uh, pass along a message so that that engineer on the ground, the individual contributor, will have the um, the both the safety and the skill. You need both things to um uh, share that information and make sure we avoid the 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 big disastrous release or whatever the problem is got it okay so um jeffrey and i are doing that with one company right now um uh, so that's a a a fairly common kind of thing to want to do um but the chief thing that that you want is is you want um really clear and repeated um executive communication and my, my favorite example that i bring up a lot uh, I really think it's true. I've, I've I've certainly seen it many places, so there's reason to believe that it's not an apocryphal story, but it could be. Um goes back to to our friend Steve Jobs. Not a model of brilliant communication, by the way, so not, not a person who did a lot of joint design, but um, uh, was really, really effective at uh, communicating a particular point of view in the early days of his return to Apple. So um, he he'd promised a thousand songs in your pocket, and we were going to have this wonderful iPod thing, and, and so the engineers brought him the very first iPod. With wires hanging out of it and, um, you know, the the case kind of stuck on crooked and so on. They said, look, this is the only one we got. But look how amazing it is. Steve, look how tiny it is. And you can play a thousand songs on it. And he didn't put on the headphones. Steve, put on the headphones. You want to hear this thing? He said, guys, this this is a nonstarter. This is too big. And they said, Steve, this is as small as we can possibly get. Look how much smaller it is than a Walkman and everything else. He said, guys, this is too big. And they went back and forth a few times, and then he walked over to his aquarium, so he had this big aquarium in his office apparently, and he dropped the only iPod in existence, the <laughs> only one that they had, into the aquarium, and everyone stands there slack-jawed, and he says, do you see those bubbles coming up from, the, from the, your prototype there? And I say, oh, uh, yeah, Steve. And uh, he says, well, that means there's air pockets in there. Bring it back to me when there are no air pockets. And they fished it out (laughs) of the aquarium and walked off. Now, the most important thing about this story is that I know this story. And now your listeners know this story. It's because it's such a good story. It's so um, evocative and so surprising and so clear that um, it kind of spreads itself. You kind of can't help but tell people this story. And that's the kind of communication that you want to have um, so that people remember it because um, uh, and use it all over the company because that story got told all over Apple, that's why I know yeah. it because it leaked out. Um, and uh, it influenced people all over. I'm sure they were making decisions about um, you know what uh, uh, hard drive technology to, to use or, or how to stripe their databases or whatever. They wanted to make some decision and somebody would say, well, we don't want Steve to drop it in the aquarium. Yeah. And what they meant was we we want to make sure we get to the highest level of performance and we want to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to get the best result. That was the the message Steve wanted to get across. And there were you know thousands and thousands of decisions he never had any part of that he influenced by making that, giving that very clear message. So you don't have to drop anything into aquariums, but um it certainly seems to me that the the thing that is most successful is when the folks at the top can find aquarium-like steps to take, things that are really clear, um, uh, convincing, um, uh, memorable, that can influence the organization all the way down. Um, and that gives the message about where to go. And, and that's usually most effective. But by the way, that's not what you do at commando stage. right? At commando stage, you get everybody together and tell them stuff. Um, when you're starting to be infantry and, and, uh, and police, that's when you need this kind of level of communication. The other thing that's important is to make sure that people develop the skills, and that's something you can do at lower levels, um, but there are practices you can do um, uh, just uh, having people, if, if they if they don't feel like reading the book, which they, I'm not trying to push it, but um, if, if you don't want to follow a formal process, certainly having people practice and saying well, you, you should try having a difficult conversation every week, that might be your, your aquarium moment, is um, making sure everyone understands that sharing difficult information, difficult uh, um data is is part of the practice it's part of what's expected of the company and having them practice it because it's a skill as well as feeling safe that's what you need
0: yeah kind of evocative of that you know sh- growing and sharing tribal knowledge and understanding through storytelling um indeed yeah really interesting around the campfire kind of stuff mm-hmm. um okay so moving on to a, a kind of another topic we'd slightly touched on um earlier but uh you know the point around making sure everyone's Aiming in the right direction and, and are focused on the right things. So, can we move the conversation on to maybe kind of accountability and setting objectives and, and how you get that alignment through the organization to make sure everyone is pointed in the right way?
1: Sure. So, um, the, the accountability is something I've thought a lot about and, and learned a lot from Jeffrey on, by the way, because he's um, he's very effective at it, and I, I've been privileged to learn from my co-author on it. Um, the, the, my favorite method for um, providing accountability uh, comes, believe it or not, from the Prussian military of the 1800s, uh, and it's detailed in a book by a guy named Stephen Bungay uh, uh, called The Art of Action, and um, it, it really, really nicely combines two really important things. You want to have some freedom. What you don't want to do is um, uh, unless you want to kind of get lucky and be successful like a Jobs or a Bloomberg who got involved in in very, very low level details, what you want is to be able to um, delegate something to someone but then not forget about it because the other danger is you just delegate and forget it and it goes off in some crazy direction and because you're no longer commandos, you can't keep track of it anymore and so you come back – I had a – Client with this situation, they um, uh, went off on, uh, on a, in the direction in the early days of Facebook, um, when Facebook was becoming very popular. They um, figured out a way to trade, almost like an arbitrage, on Facebook um, key terms and, and adverts and so on. They built a whole system for doing this, um, and uh, in, in fact, their system was so uh, uh, complex and, and um, demanding that it crashed Facebook servers, so they got in trouble with Facebook. The problem was this was an e-commerce company, and um, they really did not have to um, arbitrage every Facebook key term and so on in order to um, get the, every uh, penny out of their advertising spend. They could just advertise for what they sold, and um, so <laughs> although the uh, uh, the executives had delegated the idea of improving um, uh, ad spend, uh, they didn't mean um, the, this level of investment. So they wound up wasting about 200k. Right on this uh, 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 thing that was going off in the wrong direction. That was because there was no useful accountability. Um, By the way, I'm not a big fan of of saying you hold someone accountable because that sounds one way. That sounds very unilateral, Uh like you're – saying um, you, you wouldn't say something you don't typically hear uh, who can we hold accountable for this tremendous success you know we've done this great thing who can we hold accountable <laughs> now, holding accountable is always negative being accountable being accountable is both both directions and, and both positive and negative. So they didn't have an accountability mechanism. So the mechanism that comes from the Prussian military goes like this. Um, if you're uh, fighting the French, which the Prussians were doing all the way through the 1800s, um, and uh, you, you want somebody off in the, the woods somewhere to take an action, you want them to collaborate with you, you know, you're their commanding officer, you don't have a drone in the sky, and you don't have radio and radar and all that stuff, so you don't even really know where they are. What you do is you send off a horse, And then the horse goes riding off into the forest uh, with a a messenger on it. And the message that the the horseman, uh, the the messenger is carrying says, would you please um, march north and make sure that um, you do not engage the enemy because we don't want to get drawn into a battle right now. We don't have enough reinforcements. But um, march north and, um, you know, use whatever marching order and whatever path makes sense to you. You're free to choose that, but your constraint is don't get into a battle. I need you moved north. What I'm going to do is also move north and and go to the other side, and we're going to surround the enemy. And the most important thing is right at the bottom of this letter what you're going to do. So I know about it, and I can coordinate, and I can also correct you if I've got it wrong. Um, So uh, over and over again, they sent out these kinds of letters. And uh, the person would say, okay, so we're, we're going to march north with our cavalry first, and uh, infantry will follow behind, and um, we're going to take this path. And um, the, the process that Bungay extracts from that is called briefing and back briefing. So the briefing is sending out the message that says, here's what your freedom is, and here's what your constraints are, and tell me what the results are. And typically I'll tell people, make sure you book in the calendar at that time when the back briefing will be. You say, uh, James, I want you to um, record three podcast episodes this week. Your freedom is that they can be whatever length you like, but they all have to be about agile software development. And um, I'd like to hear your plan for recording those episodes on Tuesday at three. Is that a good time for you? And then you come back to me and you say, well, Squirrel, actually I found that four episodes would be better and the length is going to be uh, 12 minutes and um, uh, these are the guests. And I have the opportunity then to to be accountable with you. I can say, well, I wasn't clear. I only can have room for three. Um, Twelve minutes is too short, but those guests sound great. And we have an opportunity to continue having that back-briefing discussion as you go out and execute the plan I gave you. That's a terrible plan, by the way. Don't do that. But um, <laughs> you, understand, you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's my favorite way to um, introduce the idea of, uh, of accountability into a team uh, in a structured way. Right. Again, it doesn't matter at commando stage. Uh, you can just turn around and say, what are you doing? But um, when you, we get to infantry, you really need to think more carefully about uh, your accountability. And that's my favorite framework.
0: And you adjust that technique based on the, you know, the, uh, the kind of experience levels of the individuals. Because you know, back to that conversation we had around, you know, some people not being equipped to have difficult conversations, or are, are some people uh, unequipped to just go out and figure it out themselves, or, or do you find that's a universal? Uh, oh, absolutely. Capability? No, you
1: do need to. You do need to give the directions differently, and usually cascades. So to, yeah. To, to, your general, you might give um, uh, kind of vague directions like march north. To a private, you might say, um, you know, left, right, left, right, uh, <laughs> let's march this way, stay on the road. Um, so you're going to give much more uh, directive um, directions to somebody lower level but you can uh, the the th- the idea works all the way down yeah. because you can easily say to somebody well um, so your task is this um, um, uh, this piece of code to write this feature uh, that we're going to build um, let's build a color picker um, here are some examples of color pickers pick the one that seems most nice to you um, show me at noon uh, what your code looks like remember that uh, we're trying to use this new coding standard so that's your constraint don't uh, uh, don't use this this um, uh, 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 this method that uh, that we're all trying to avoid and get rid of. And then you come back at noon, you review the code, and you give the person feedback. So that would be the very low-level yeah. version of the same thing. Uh, so you do absolutely have to tune it to the, um, the, the level of the person. Okay, makes
0: sense. Um... So I guess the final topic that I just wanted to get your thoughts on was, um, you know, certainly in the Cambridge area, um, with the work we've seen with the business school and various other places, and and I think this is true, not just in Cambridge, but certainly in Berlin quite a bit, you get quite a lot of non-technical founders of startups. Um, So I'm I'm kind of curious to see if you've got any advice or tips for non-technical founders in terms of how to, you know, find their technical co-founder their cto if you like and kind of advice on how to build that relationship and how to you know have those how to communicate with each other um if you're coming from quite
1: different perspectives well my my usual advice here is learn to code and, (laughs) and 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 become technical and and the reason i say that is it's usually a heck of a lot easier to to learn to do it yourself and do it badly and then to have a um successful product and attract um, more, uh, uh, more technical people to it. Um, and I actually have a wonderful example of this. I, I don't think I'm allowed to say who they are, but if, if anybody wants to get in touch with them, just write to me and I'll, I'll put you in touch. There's this wonderful company in, in, um, in I guess I'll say prop tech, uh, so, so uh, real estate essentially. Mm. And um, they had exactly this problem. The The founder said, look, I, I don't know how to code. I, I, I have this wonderful idea. It's really going to work well. And he hired an operations person with him and he said, here's this problem. I don't understand this problem. Can you figure out what the heck we can do, because currently we're running everything on spreadsheets. And the person said, spreadsheets, that's interesting. And he used a, a tool called Airtable. Um, there are various copies of this, Monday.com is another similar thing. Um, and uh, Zapier, which is a way of tying different yeah. um, uh, pieces of code together. Um, but all of this, no code at all. So you know, creating really more spreadsheets, yeah. and more ways to tie them together, and a wacky set of operational processes that, that tied them together that you could follow to make the thing happen. So it was this crazy Heath Robinson, Rube Goldberg machine type thing, um, that, but it actually worked and it, it produced the outputs that the rest of the business needed and uh, allowed them to grow. So the funny thing is the founder came to me um, uh, at Series A and said, I'm writing my pitch deck and what I'm really confused about is what I call this. And so I sat for a while and thought and I said, aha, I know what it is. It's serverless technology because you're, you're running without servers, right? It's all the, the Airtable people and Zapier people are all running your infrastructure for you. And uh, it was amazing how how far he could get with his um, very clever um, uh, non coding but very um, uh, um, uh, organizationally minded uh, operations person in himself and uh, and writing all this crazy stuff. So that's my favorite way. And did they is, get their Series A
0: off of the back of it? They that? absolutely did. And then they wow, hired okay. developers
1: who then wrote a bunch of code for them. It was it was great. And they they retro built the tech on top of it. Okay. Yeah, it was perfect. Um, Airbnb started similarly. There's a lot of stories like this. Yeah. Anyway, the so that's my favorite way, and and the the reason that it is my favorite way is there is such a dearth of um, uh, suitably technically skilled people. You can you can get if you work hard at it um, uh, a person who's really inexperienced and who can write code pretty well, but um, is not good at any of the other parts of the business, and then you wind up with some of the problems that we've described. Uh, uh, later on in the in the growth of the business because that person doesn't scale with it, uh-huh. uh, doesn't develop the skills. Um, you can outsource to someplace far away and ask someone to build for you, but they tend to build quite um, um, uh, standardized types of uh, tools. They kind of do the same thing again and again. That's what they get, get good at. Yeah. So if you have special needs, That'll be hard to customize, and you have no team. You have no investment in uh, in people who know your business. They're all far away and, and not in your company. Um, and you can try, um, and this is the best I can tell anybody for, for, for really finding a tech co-founder, is just try your friends and your friends of your friends and your friends of your friends of your friends. Social networks these days are pretty good. Computers can help you with finding these people. The problem is, um, making someone like that interested when they have ten other, um, uh, folks uh, every morning writing to them about uh, the wonderful new idea and would you please come join Facebook, uh, triple your salary, and other things. Yeah, uh, getting their attention is very, very difficult. So, um, and if they're not your, your, your roommate from university. It's going to be hard to get their attention and get their trust. So um, that that is a tough row to hoe. You have a brilliant idea, nobody to work on it with you. Um, my favorite thing is uh, learn to code.
0: And does that work in both directions? You know, do you also advise that, uh, you know, the CTO um, gets more business orientated?
1: Uh, well, absolutely. That's a very helpful thing for for any technical person to do because your your value increases geometrically. It's it's really. Um, Amazing. If sometimes I'll talk to technical folks and say, "Yo, what I really want to do," and I understand why they want this. And I have a lot of empathy for it. I really want to learn the latest new technology. I want to learn React and uh, Redux, and um, you know the next nifty thing that our front end friends are going to dream up. I can't keep track anymore, um, and and so they'll 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 want to to learn the latest new groovy thing, and the thing is that's kind of a linear way to improve. You you've added one skill, and that skill will be valuable for a while, and then it'll be eclipsed by something even better, and then you'll need to learn that skill. Whereas if you learn uh, what return on investment is, if you learn um, uh, uh, how to talk to customers and um, how to uh, conduct basic user research, if you do things like that, those are evergreen and they tend to multiply. So um, as you get more and more of them, uh, they increase your value um, much more than the effort you're putting in. So absolutely, I'd recommend that um, just for someone's individual career. It's going to make a huge difference to them, Um, but also certainly it's valuable to a business. Um, For instance, if you find yourself with that uh, uh, very technical uh, founder and that person is open to it, having that person get some coaching, um, go on some courses, um, do some self-study, there are lots of different ways to learn it, but tell that person, stop learning new technology. Um, Stop adding new features. And the person says, but wait, these customers, they want these things. You say, let your team do that. You get better at the strategy. Um, and, and that's often a, uh, uh, something that pays off very quickly. So, Squirrel, I mean, thanks so
0: much. Fascinating conversation. We covered a lot of ground there. Um, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Um, and tell us a little bit more about the book. Sure. So the book is called Agile Conversations. It's out in May from IT Revolution. These are the folks who wrote the the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project, which is their new one, and uh, lots of other nifty books in between. Uh, So you can find that uh, in all good bookshops and Amazon and all that good stuff. You can pre-order it now. Uh, It's got all these techniques in it, like um, uh, 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 briefing and back briefing, joint design, difficult conversations, and we take you through step-by-step everything that you need to know in order to improve your skills really quickly. Um, There's lots of concrete exercises, um, descriptions of uh, actual conversations and um, scoring that you can do to try to improve your own conversations. So uh, I would be grateful if uh, people would have a look at that. Uh, The best place to find it, unfortunately, uh, the the, the obvious URL was was held by somebody who wouldn't let us have it. So um, it's on conversationaltransformation.com or if that's too long to remember, just remember me, douglassquirrel.com will link you to it.
0: Perfect. We'll put the links in the show notes and uh, you also have the podcast as well, right? Troubleshooting oh, Agile. Oh yeah, of
1: course. Yeah. So that's troubleshootingagile.com. And um, that's uh, um, a podcast Jeffrey and I have been doing for a couple of years. We developed a lot of the material for the book through the podcast. And um, if you would like to, to hear us talking about these topics and uh, bringing on interesting guests and you um, uh, uh, on real examples that our listeners bring us, uh, you can listen to us every week. Perfect. Well, again, thanks so much. And, uh, we'll speak soon. Super. Thanks, James. Really appreciate being on. So
0: thanks once again to Douglas Squirrel for coming on today's show. What a fantastic conversation that was. As always, the show was produced by Carl Homer. And thank you to the team at Carbon Orange for our brand design. And we'd like to thank Speechmatics, whose technology powers our show transcriptions. Don't forget to connect to us on social to suggest a guest or tell us your experiences of scaling tech teams inside startups and scale-ups. You can find us at Purveil Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.